Welcome back to the Good News Podcast. My name is Ayebele, and I'm a pastor at St. Paul's Free Methodist Church in Greenville, Illinois. I'm currently going through the ordination process, and one of the great gifts that the church has given me uh, is the opportunity to be a part of their rotating pulpit. The message that you're about to hear has been pre-recorded, but whether you heard it live uh, or long after it's been uploaded, I believe that the Holy Spirit is present. I hope you enjoy, and I look forward to hearing your thoughts and feedback uh, and comments. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Mark. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the spirit descending like a dove on him. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son, the beloved. With you, I am well pleased. And the spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness And he was in the wilderness for 40 days, tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild beasts, and the angels waited on him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God has uh, has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. This is the gospel of our Lord. Praise be seated. So I have a few things to admit before we get into the sermon. As you might hear, I'm fighting allergies, so hopefully it's nothing contagious. But uh, I also want to admit that every time that a preacher steps behind the pulpit, they run the risk of being misunderstood. And so for that reason, as we wrestle with the first Sunday in Lent, uh, we will have sermon and suites here at St. Paul's Free Methodist Church at 7 p.m. tomorrow. So bring your questions, comments, concerns, that sort of thing. I also want to prepare you for a lot of questions. This preaching style will will have a lot more questions than answers. Uh, And so if that frustrates you, be patient with me. Um, I think that's what we're here to do is ask ask the right questions. So last week we heard uh, a voice at the end of, as as the season after the epiphany came to an end, and Pastor Ben was preaching on the transfiguration of Jesus as Jesus is on uh, on this mountain with his disciples and There appears Moses and Elijah. And so uh, we hear this voice that says, this is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. And Pastor Ben mentioned one of Elijah's most profound miracles in separating the Jordan River as Moses did with the Nile. And so these are Yahweh's mightiest acts of liberation and salvation for his people. And so here we are once again in the Jordan River, and the voice says, this is my son, the beloved, but this time it says, with you I am well pleased. It's addressing Jesus. And oh, how we long to hear these words for ourselves. You, my child, the beloved, and with you I am well pleased, that I love you. And yet as we wrestle with such good news I think we often resonate with a different voice that calls out. Maybe one that perhaps like God walking in the Garden of Eden says, who told you you were naked? That this question brings us maybe judgment. That have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? In other words, did you do the thing that I told you not to do? Perhaps this is a question that we wrestle with time and time again. Because you cannot read Genesis without having to address the chaos of creation. And so in this Lenten season, the chaos and the destruction of sin are things that the church does not avoid. This is the, if there is a season, this is the season that we should talk about it and we should address it and that we should wrestle with it. 
And it must go uh, noticed, especially when we look at how humankind's sin has impacted all of creation as we, as we read in Genesis 9. That every relationship is complicated in the brokenness of human sin. So for over, over 2,000 years, rather, the, the church has recognized this season as one of penitence. And after our Ash Wednesday service uh, this, this last Wednesday, we received, uh, we received really a prophetic word that if one is already suffering and one is already uh, distraught and, and, and there's no control and, and you're in the midst of suffering, should we dive deeper into this suffering or should we maybe be present to the suffering? Are they different or are they the same? It was in this fellowship that we received this prophetic word. And so I don't mean to rewrite church history, but I think we'd be lying to ourselves if we said that the church has been flawless in its witness for 2,000 years that it has existed. Would we cheer on the church-sanctioned colonial expansion which spread the gospel that said it was good to call God's very own children heathens? To teach them a love of God by way of physical, mental, sexual, and spiritual violence. Fellow humans introduced to an alien God. Would we say amen to the messages preached by chaplains on slave ships as they shared a gospel which began with slaves? Be obedient unto your master as unto Christ. Would we clap our hands and stomp our feet in praise as mega churches and maybe smaller churches close their doors to the homeless and the hungry after a hurricane? As God's children seek shelter and scraps to eat, that they are met with sour wine and eviction notices. Today, we approach the same story, although it is written in a different font. And this message is not a contradiction of what we heard last week, but rather it presents the paradox that we all have to wrestle with every single day of our lives should we say yes to Jesus. It's an offense to our logic. It is a rejection of our wisdom, and it's a complication of our own intellect. And the paradox is this. It's one that makes the divine all too familiar with your nakedness. Maybe in ways that you and I would, would like to ignore. The nakedness that only a spouse or a parent or a sibling might be familiar with while we continue to sew up our garments of separation and protection. Who told you that you were naked? The Christian journey is far more than mental clarity and cognitive capacity. The word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. This is the son, the beloved, with whom God is well pleased. Jesus Christ, this God-man paradox, is cognitively useless if we do not appreciate Christ with all of our being. It is more than what you know mentally. It's what you've experienced with your body, with your soul, with your mind. So while we do not proclaim ourselves, the good news of Jesus Christ can at no point be divorced from our very own bodies. The mess, maybe the brokenness, the healing that we desire, the healing that we need, our very messy stories and complicated history. I might not know what it's like to be God, but I definitely know what it's like to be human. And I think you do too. And this is the paradox. That if we experience God, we experience God within our own bodies as well. That the spirit dwells within us. So anthropomorphism. Yeah? This big word 
that basically is that we're wildly uncomfortable when God seems to act as human. And that's exactly what we see in Genesis 9 and what we see in the Gospels is God seems a little too human. And perhaps we despise the human. We see the human as totally depraved and worthless or, or downright unworthy. And this adds to the complicatedness, not just in our relationship with God, but in our relationship to one another. That humans, up to no good, when left to our own devices, we will eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil and hide not only from God, not only from our neighbors, but even from ourselves. It is indeed painful at times to admit that we are human. And so the good news is often clothed within the four walls of the church, a temptation that this is our worship to make us good, rather than to believe that we were created very good. But here is not where we earn God's love, and worship is not an opportunity to be shielded from life's struggles and life's worries and life's temptations we are not here to divide and, and split the line between what is sacred and what is secular. That is to go against the incarnation as God became flesh and lived amongst us. Here we gather to be reminded of God's love and eternal invitation to embrace life and to go through the messiness of life and that the way forward for reconciliation and liberation to self, to neighbor, and to God is that the gospel is all about Jesus, yes, but it's also all about creation. That it's also what you get to be a part of. And so I ask, what if it was a lie that the cunning serpent who whispered, you will not die for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Cognitive clarity will only take us so far. So can I have some permission to get messy today? Yeah? The gospel was messy 2,000 years ago, and the gospel is messy today. You know good and you know evil, but do you know good and do you know evil? As we despise the things that make us human, is it possible for God to not hate us? What is it that God, uh, wasn't it God who created us in their image and proceeded to call us very good? That the incarnation of Jesus Christ guarantees us that the gospel will never not be messy. Look at how the story continues and how it ended and continues and ended and continues time and time again. It guarantees us that uh, the gospel will not be messy. So why do we seek to paint pristine chapels and seek to clothe ourselves in purple, the color of royalty, anthropomorphism? Is it either the fear or the liberation that God just might know our nakedness all too well. I'm compelled to say that neat Christianity will be our demise. It will, because the gospel is inherently messy. It presents a paradox of the divine becoming flesh, of the incarnation and the messianic secret, the revelation of God and the hiddenness of God in Jesus Christ. Now, in the book of Genesis, there is this theme of twos that I continually come across as we see the heavens and the earth. As we read of Adam and Eve, as we read of Cain and Abel, and then as it continues into the flood narrative, we also see that Noah's Ark, there's two of, uh, two of every kind of animal. And that there at the end, as the waters are receding, Noah sends out a dove and a raven. It's almost distressing to see that God is depicted as having human emotions. It's a little too human for this deity. And so we're really 
really uncomfortable with what that might mean. And so look at the, destru the destruction that was caused. How many lives were lost in the flood? On top of that, God seems to pinky promise with a rainbow that I'll never do that again, at least not through a flood. But to be honest, I don't want a pinky promise at times. I want grandma and grandpa to come back. I want mom and dad to come back. I want my siblings and my parents to be present. So following Jesus now leads us to ask some potentially terrifying questions. What has God done and not done? And what is it that I have done and left undone? In our reading of Mark's gospel, Jesus, God in the flesh, receives a baptism of repentance. And it is puzzling, it should be puzzling, that Jesus would receive a baptism of repentance. And that God would pinky promise not to flood the whole world again. So we got a lot of questions. As God walks in the cool of our garden and says, who told you that you were naked? As Cain slays our brother Abel, God asks, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. And as the Lord witnessed the wickedness of humankind, Genesis says that the Lord was sorry that he made humans on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. Now I ask, did God, was God grieved to see how much we were hurting each other? Was his heart broken as he watched our shame dominate everything that we do, keeping us from knowing one another? What if the flood narrative is functionally the third creation narrative in Genesis? That after the receding waters, Noah and his family are instructed in their dominion to set free every kind of animal, every creeping thing, every bird, and everything that moves on the, on the earth. That they are instructed to be fruitful and multiply multiple times in Genesis 9. That you shall not eat the flesh with its life. Here we have a restriction of what Noah's family can and can't eat. That the human vocation remains unchanged, for in his image, God created humankind. Genesis 9, 6. Could the flood narrative be the author's attempt at communicating that God does not ask of humans anything that God is not willing to do God's self? Genuine confession and repentance. Could the question, who told you you were naked, rather than be a divine booby trap for eternal damnation, be an invitation to experience confession and repentance, leading to the reconciliation of all creation? And as God strolls through the garden, he says, tell me so that I can bring peace to this chaos, just as I did in the treacherous waters of the, uh, as I hovered over the face of the deep. Could God's question to Cain, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. Rather than be a prescription of Cain's curse saying that you will now be cursed forever, could it be a description of the brokenness that Cain is already experiencing? The fruit of knowledge of good and evil, this cancerous idea that it is our actions that can save us or damn us. That they drive our classification as though this is what defines whether we are good or bad. And depending on the gritting of our teeth and the might and will of, of our own strength, that we would fight against sin and suffering and that we would prevail. At least that is the picture that we paint when we get dressed and we come to enjoy our Sunday worship. If I do A, B, and C, I'm a good person. And if I don't do A, B, or C, I'm a bad person. But at least I do not do X, Y, or Z. That would make me a really bad person. 
Friends, this baptism of repentance, it requires us to confess openly that we cannot save ourselves. It requires us to admit that we are not God. And it requires us to say that the divine love of the triune God has already spoken over us that we are indeed very good. And that in this liberation, this is where the relationships would be healed. This is where all of creation would be reconciled. That there's nothing we can do to make God love us more, and there's nothing that we can do to make God love us less. And if we confess, then we can repent. And if we can't confess, there will be no reconciliation and there will be no healing. We will remain enslaved to our own performance because repentance is the beginning of liberation and salvation. We are to confess to God, to neighbor, and to ourselves. We're to confess the waters that we're drowning in, the destruction that we have caused, and the destruction that others have caused upon us, while resisting the temptation to believe the lie that our actions and they equate to our conditions and define our existence. There is no such thing as an addict. And we are simply humans who suffer with the false promises of addictions. That there is no one who is a failure, that we are simply human beings living through seasons that cause us to stumble as we find our way. That there is no one who is successful, but that we are human beings learning to follow our calling in its shape-shifting ways. That no one is perfect. We are just humans who are good at hiding our pain. And these labels, must we admit that God is still sovereign over all human conditions? Now, here's where I wish to employ Brene Brown, who proclaims that vulnerability is calculated, that there is a difference between vulnerability and oversharing, that vulnerability takes courage, and it is intentional. And so, I'm not saying that you go and post all of your sins on Facebook and tweet all of the, the fights that you've had. No, it, it requires a relationship, that it's intimate, and that you have to make the decision to say, I am going to share my brokenness, and in that, that we will be healed. In Genesis 9, God models what confession and repentance looks like. As the world is baptized by God, and in the first chapter of Mark's gospel, the word of God is baptized by the world. Are you with me? That in Genesis, the world is baptized by God, and in Mark... The word of God is baptized by the world. Jesus' baptism is not by fire. Have you guys ever heard that saying of baptism by fire? But for them, this wouldn't have been nearly as destructive as water. They were very familiar with what a, a flood might do to them or what a drought might do to them. So water is as destructive as it can get. And yet, instead of rising from the waters and strolling into this flourishing garden, Jesus is not in control of where the Spirit takes him. And he ends up in the wilderness where he suffers greatly and is tempted. That this baptism of repentance through water in no way signifies an easier life. However, it signifies a profound hope of life beyond the sting of death. A life of resurrection. Waiting to be embraced by you, not just by your mind, but by your entire being. Your soul. That the, resur the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting proclaims that death is not the final experience. That the love of God is what will reconcile us, not our track record of how good or bad we have been. That this is God's truth since the beginning. And it's as though we were watching the transfiguration once again, as there's no reason for Jesus and the disciples to stay in this moment of spiritual ecstasy.
that they are plunged right back into regular life. They go down the mountain, and in this, in Mark chapter 1, Jesus goes into the wilderness. And so I'm here to tell you that religion will not be your escape from suffering. Whether that of your own or that of the world, but should you say yes to following Jesus, you'll be scuba diving into the depth of suffering as the incarnation reveals in the Gospels. I think there have been an infinite amount of attempts in asking the question, why do we suffer? And how do we make sense of it? Or in other words, maybe how do we control it? And this morning, I refuse to make it an infinity in one. I do not know everything that you suffer through. And perhaps that is to my detriment. Perhaps I would experience God more if I did. But a part of me wishes that we would experience each other's pain. That the relationship that uh, God in the flesh identifies with us in our life. I'm learning that love asks this question, what is it that you need? Rather than imposing that I know better. If we proclaim that Christ's love led him to identify with our suffering, then our love for God, our love for our neighbor, and our love for ourselves requires us to identify with the suffering of all creation. That we are impacted as we do this, as we live this life. If someone else is suffering, I inherently cannot live in peace. Perhaps you've experienced this with your own family. Someone that you love dearly who suffers greatly and it impacts you because you love them. You care about them. You know them very well. So during this Lenten season, we're not to escape the fear that death strikes in us. And when I was younger, I would show up to church on Sundays and we would hear the, the I call them church aunties. They would say, thank God that I don't look like what I've been through. And I'm now starting to think that maybe that's not such a good thing. That we need our testimonies, our confessions, the things that we are struggling through in order to be liberated so we're not isolated from the triune God who is present today and alive today. Here's what I'm convinced of. In no way, shape, or form is repentance supposed to act as amnesia, that you would forget the things that you have lived through, that we would somehow run away from our suffering or try to control the pain Do not live in the shame of falling short. Confession is not about how bad you are. It's about how good God has been and how good God will continue to be. So we celebrate God's grace that today is a new day with new beginnings and that we get to be born again. But don't ignore and avoid the pain. This is not the story of the cross. This is not liberation. Whether it's the suffering dealt to us by those who love us or people that we already did not trust and and wanted nothing to do with. Whether it's the suffering that we ourselves inflict upon others by the things that we have done and indeed the things that we have left undone. And whether it's the suffering that's just simply outside of anybody's control. There is power in our testimony that should we share what God is delivering us from. And so the question, beloved child of the Most High, is a terrifying one of why do you hide? Why do you hide behind the bread and the drinking of this cup? For your salvation was mediated to you by the things that you thought were meant to destroy you. This is the gospel story. That your baptism, which this prefigured, now saves you not as a removal from dirt, 
uh, from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God and with angels and authorities and powers made subject to him. Take a deep breath. Beloved, you cannot know what it is to live if you preserve and protect yourself by forgetting parts of your own story or parts of your family's story or controlling the narrative and trying to maybe shape it into perfection. That if you wish to share in Christ's glory without having to take up the instrument of your public humiliation and death, that you will never live free. And that this public image will be the God that gives you a false hope and a false healing and a false purpose. Because every attempt at avoidance and escape is the bondage of sin. But the baptism of repentance requires you to reject the idol of perfection. Should we desire to share in Christ's glory, he would turn to us and say, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I, uh, that I drink or be baptized with the baptism that I will be baptized with? And the cup that I drink, you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. Transcending being human is not an escape route. This will not take you to the freedom that you seek, and perfection will only be a new bondage for you. It is confession and repentance that the Christian journey begins. That it has never been about how bad you are, but about how good God is and how good God will continue to be. And it doesn't matter who you are. There's not enough shaming. There's not enough guilting. There's not enough self-hatred in the world that will transform your heart into a loving and beating thing. Only the divine love is powerful enough to do that. And so as we turn to our first lesson We see that this covenant is mentioned seven times as the promise not to destroy life extends to all of creation and that God, the initiator of the covenant, is mentioned about 13 times while the receiver of the covenant is mentioned about 22 times. We see that repentance is never to be isolated and internalized, that I'll repent in a closed room behind closed doors, lock the closet, I'll jump into the deepest depths of it and and hide. But since in our destruction and in our restoration, every living creature and all flesh of the earth and all generations of humankind are impacted, therefore, our confession has to also be communal. That repentance goes further than just the, invitation, uh, just the individual. Last Sunday, we heard that Dietrich Bonhoeffer bids a, proclaimed that Christ bids us come and die. And I'm reading this, uh, this book for one of my classes A Testament to Freedom, The Essential Writings of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. As you can tell, it's about Dietrich Bonhoeffer's writings. They were essential. But he argues that people can encounter Christ only as a person in relationship with other people. It is therefore the duty of the believing community to recognize and enable Christ's personal presence in the world. I cannot know Christ if I do not know you. This is is the primary form of obedience to his word that we must take. And instead of trying to fit Christ into some preconceived theological schema of how is Christ possible or what categories can we fit him into, the believing community must set out to follow Christ. For the church to dally with waiting proofs of the rightness of a particular Christian action is for Bonhoeffer to fall into the deceptive trap of reducing Christ to only clear images that guarantee safety 
and church purity. We are plunged right into the, the depth, the deepest waters. And in reality, the church would, by this deception, avoid Christ's historical incognitos and the very risk that his cross betokens. In other words, the Christian church may be guilty of avoiding the scandal of Christ because Christ's humiliation in the various incognitos assumes much more than a triumphalist church can take. He continues to honor Christ in the tabernacle, but not in the leper or the outcast of society. It's getting real messy. I think we've built our identity on being a church that does it the most right. Or that we've built our identity as individuals on being people who have got it the most right. And this has become our bondage to which we must escape. The tears that we hide, the scars that we cover up. Now, if this induces shame or anger or maybe even surprise within you, interrogate that. And bring that with you on Monday at 7 p.m. Whether or not we're able to see it as we judge other churches for rejecting a gospel of justice, as we giggle at other believers who reject the deconstruction and reconstruction realities, as we're infuriated with Christians who aren't willing to proclaim something as radical as black lives do indeed matter, we simultaneously create our own landmines, which will explode our theology if we just so happen to challenge them and say that we might not be living up to them. Our sin is the assumption that we know, that we know God's word, and that we know the person across the room or up here in the pulpit, that we know ourselves. Yet we all need each other's help in fostering this curiosity, that should you say yes to Christ, you are free from all things and over all things, and that there is no need to earn God's grace, but that the divine love will place a hunger in you that you will share this to all of creation. Your works cannot come before your faith. You cannot save yourself. It's in community that we experience Christ. It's in, a, in community that we experience death. And it's in community that we will experience resurrection. Can you forgive yourself as God already has? Can you forgive your community as God already has? So our repentance today requires us to lay down the fear of being on the wrong side of the crucifixion. And by forgiving ourselves and accepting, accepting God's mercy, which has already been offered to us time and time and time again, we cannot control, alt, delete the suffering around the world. But perhaps that God is sovereign and that resurrection comes after the death. The cross and the baptism say the same thing. That your public humiliation, the death of a sinner, the violence enacted upon you by your loved ones, the people that you trust, the punches that you saw coming, the cross that was uh, the, the crown of thorns that was given. They are not the pinnacle of your existence. They are not signs of your weakness that the world lied to you in saying that this was weakness to begin with. That your good works are filthy rags so long as you think that they are the ones saving you. Obedience is rendered by faith. That is the good news. That we must repent of the ways that we think we know God, the way that we think we know our neighbors and that we think we know ourselves. That we foster curiosity, both within ourselves and within our community, by challenging our fears of vulnerability and submitting to the dangers of this divine love. Where there's no detour, 
There's no detour to uh, escape the cross. So I ask you a few more questions today. Do you remember your baptism if you've been baptized? And maybe this is where I plug. If you haven't, let us know. Can you talk about your wilderness? Are you willing to share the details of your temptations? Can you describe the wild beasts and the angels? We all need people around us to help us learn how to do this well. And instead of thinking of repentance through the lens of an individual, we're learning to do this as a community. This time, the time is this, right? This is the word. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.